1: From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, what has happened to the legacy of Justice Sandra Day O'Connor? The first woman on the U.S. Supreme Court died last week, and during her near-quarter century on the High Court, became known for being moderate, a consensus builder, and pragmatic, sensitive to the impact of judicial decisions on public life. Words rarely used to describe today's ideological Supreme Court. O'Connor, despite some of her personal views, worked to preserve Roe v. Wade keep race as a factor in college admissions, and warned against blurring the line between separating church and state. That judicial legacy is now in shambles, says one of our guests, Dahlia Lithwick. We'll hear what you think after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Back when Justice Sandra Day O'Connor graduated near the top of her class from Stanford Law School, she could not get a job here. Often she couldn't even get an interview, with some firms saying outright they did not hire women. O'Connor would go on to become the first woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court after she was nominated in 1981 by President Ronald Reagan. And she would hold a powerful position as the swing vote in contentious cases on abortion, religious liberty, and affirmative action justice o'connor retired in 2006 she died friday at the age of 93 and here to talk more about her life and her legacy in light of today's supreme court is dahlia lithwick senior editor and legal correspondent at slate and author of lady justice dahlia thanks for coming on
2: thanks it's always good to be with you
1: yeah, good to have you. Melissa Murray is also with us, a professor of law at NYU School of Law and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast. Professor Murray, glad to have you on as well.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: And I understand that you met Justice O'Connor when you were in college. Can you tell us what you remember about that?
3: <laughs> oh, it was um, a really... Amazing experience for someone who very much admired Justice O'Connor. I still remember when she was nominated to the court. I think I was in junior kindergarten at the time, but it certainly left an impression. Um, But she came to the University of Virginia to do a tour with her clerks, and then they went on to Monticello and then to hike Crabapple Falls. And she was just so generous and kind. And what I remember the most is she must have been in her late 60s, but it was a lot of walking. And even after she had done the tour at the university, and then on at Monticello, they still had a full day of hiking left before them. So she was incredibly energetic, um, and just unfailingly
1: nice. Oh, wow. Well, that energy, that uh, determination, Talia Lithwick, sounds like it really came in handy uh, for her rise to the Supreme Court. I mean, beginning with when she Graduated from Stanford Law School in 1952, and I was just saying in the intro, could not even get a job. Can you talk a little bit about what she faced?
2: I, I mean, I think she faced a, a pretty consistent story for women of that generation. Folks probably know that Justice Ginsburg faced, you know, a similar situation where you graduate at the very top of your class. Um, you meet every mark and exceed it. And then people offer you secretarial jobs. Uh, she couldn't get any kind of high power legal job and ended up at some point, you know, working for free, at some point, sharing an office uh, with someone. She was so dogged that she just kind of decided that instead of wallowing in the unfairness of it all, she was just going to hang out a shingle. And be a lawyer. But, you know, at every turn, I think, post law school, um, you know, somebody of her stature and achievements and accomplishments today, the doors would have been flung open. She had to either kind of batter them down or just go around them and find another door.
1: Yeah, I heard the story of how she approached the San Mateo County District Attorney and offered to work for free and even share the desk with his secretary just to be able to get in. And had approached him because she had seen that he had at least hired one woman before that or something. <laughs> just crazy. yeah,
2: I, it, that that I I think that um you know again sometimes we think um and Melissa's a little bit younger than me but you know, we think that this is ancient, ancient history, you know, that there have always been women on the Supreme Court. And it's always sort of astonishing to think about the fact that this is actually fairly recent history. And, you know, one other thing that I I love to tell the story of um, Justice O'Connor is that even when she had three little kids at home that she was taking care of, she would just like pop them in their strollers and walk around and do, you know, political work, advocacy. I mean, she just was one of those inexhaustible energizer bunnies who didn't think it was a juggle to balance parenting and working. She just thought, this is what I have to do. And it's so interesting to me that in some ways, and and I covered her for a long time, Some of that kind of tart, what are you grousing about energy, I had to walk to and from school uphill both ways, manifested in some of her questioning and oral arguments and in (laughs) some of the, the cases she wrote that she did have this sense and it goes to this kind of Arizona cowgirl um, upbringing she had. She did have the sense that the world owed her no favors. Everything she had done, she had sort of fought for. And sometimes she could be a little prickly at oral argument when she had a feeling that people uh, weren't doing the work that she had done.
1: Yeah. Well, let me invite listeners to join the conversation. What do you remember about Justice Sandra Day O'Connor or what her appointment as the first woman to the U.S. Supreme Court meant to you? You can tell us at 866-733-6786 or by emailing forum at org. You can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. And of course, you are welcome to ask Talia Lithwick and Melissa Murray questions about the justice as well, if you didn't know that much about her. Like one of the things that uh, I was struck by Melissa is the fact that she was an elected official, which seems so rare now (laughs) on the court. It is increasingly rare on
3: the court. I think she is the last person to have been the holder of an elected office. But In the history of the Supreme Court, it hasn't actually been that unusual. Um, Earl Warren famously came from Alameda County, where he was DA and then went on to be governor of California. Hugo Black was also a senator from Alabama. But Justice O'Connor's experience in the legislature in Arizona, I think, really shaped her jurisprudence in some profound ways. Um, First, she was incredibly attentive to states' prerogatives, this idea of federalism, and that there were some things that were expressly reserved for the states to do, and then the rest was for the federal government. She was a very staunch defender of those boundaries, and, it, you know, again, was part of the rise of a new federalism at the Supreme Court. But she also was a pragmatist, and I think this, what came down to her experience in the legislature, where you could not be an ideological pure. You had to make compromises. You had to think about how a decision would play out on the ground. So, you know, she really had a kind of sure-footed pragmatism about her in terms of her jurisprudence. And I think that was because she was someone who spent part of her career counting votes, whipping votes, and trying to figure out how this would play to an audience outside of the chamber and how it would work on the ground.
1: How did it play that she was not so much an ideological purist with her fellow justices on the court, Melissa?
3: Well, again, I think she was very much a pragmatist. She often sought the narrowest grounds for decisions. She was nominated by a Republican, obviously. And when he nominated her, Justice, um or, sorry, President Ronald Reagan made assurances to the right that she was on board with the conservative project, especially in the realm of abortion. Many in the pro-life movement were very skeptical of then Judge O'Connor because she did not have a very staunch pro-life record her time in the Arizona legislature, but he assured them that, you know, she checked out. Um, That really wasn't the case. She really did become something of a compromiser and the fulcrum around which much of the court pivoted for much of her tenure on it. Um, She is part of the troika that brokered that compromise that upheld Roe versus Wade in 1992 and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, um, despite uh, ruling in a decision called Croson in 1989 that strict scrutiny, the most rigorous form of judicial Review should be applied to affirmative action. In 2003, in Grutter versus Bollinger, she really embraced this view that was asserted by General Motors and the Army that affirmative action was really necessary to build diverse workplaces for a modern economy and a modern system of government. And she was the deciding vote to uphold affirmative action. And, you know, we've seen in her absence this court really take a more ideological lurch to the right, but she was very much about keeping the court in the middle with public opinion on these hot-button issues.
1: Yeah, I heard, though, that that was not something that Justice Scalia appreciated very much, Dahlia No, and
2: I think Justice Scalia... Um, Insulted her in print, uh, in ways that drove her into the arms of uh, the center of the court, and in some huh. cases, uh, the left of the court. I think that there was a view at the time, and it was widely expressed, that, you know, as Melissa just said, she was a pragmatist. She wanted to resolve the case directly in front of her. She wanted to stick to the facts She wanted to stick to the record. There was no grandiose view of, you know, setting constitutional uh, goalposts for all time. What she wanted to do was resolve the case as fairly as possible. And as Melissa suggested, it meant often, 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 wherever public opinion was in the country, for those years that she was absolutely the decider on the court, she was there with public opinion on issue after issue. And that drove ideologues on both sides of uh, the ideological spectrum crazy because they wanted a purist. They wanted somebody who was doctrinaire, who was sort of mapping out a worldview. And she really had, in a sense, a very humble sense of her role as a jurist. And it was predicated, I think, both on you know what Melissa suggests, which is triangulating against the facts on what's best, on sort of thinking about how can I do this in a kind of cautious, pragmatic way that works best for everyone. And I think she had this other facet to her character, which again, doesn't always square because we think of her as a little bit imperious on the bench, but I think she was actually a very good listener Uh, and amicus briefs affected her uh, as Melissa suggested. Uh, She very, very much was affected by Thurgood Marshall, She was very affected by the idea that she didn't know everything and that she could be wrong. And so, yes, it's true. I think she really irked people who wanted her to be dogmatic. But I think she also was somebody who evolved and changed and listened throughout her career.
1: Dahlia Lithwick, a senior editor and legal correspondent at Slate, host of the Amicus podcast, author of Lady Justice, Women, the Law and the Battle to Save America. Dahlia has also written a piece called The Sad Ending of Sandra Day O'Connor's Judicial Legacy. And we'll talk more about her jurisprudence and what has happened to her judicial legacy after the break. We're also with Melissa Murray, co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, professor of law at NYU School of Law. And we're with you, our listeners. What do you remember about Justice O'Connor or about her appointment to the court? What questions do you have about her time on the court or about any of the decisions she authored, whether you agreed with them or not? As we think about Justice O'Connor and what they're describing of her style and approach to cases, what does that bring up for you about today's Supreme Court? We want to hear from you, and we'll dig into all of that after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're remembering Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor this hour, who died Friday. And we're looking at the impact she's had on the court and on the country with Melissa Murray, Professor of Law at NYU School of Law, and Dahlia Lithwick, Senior Editor and Legal Correspondent at Slate. And, of course, with you, our listeners, joining us at 866-733-6786 by email at forum at kqed.org and on our social channels at kqedforum. Let me go to caller Paul in Palo Alto. Paul, you're on.
5: Hi, um, the the Sandra day O'Connor's O'Connor's the, the justice legacy is Gore v. Bush. Ah. And it was an unconscionable vote. She should have let the people vote count. It opened the door for the Iraq war. It opened the door for people to get away with something in the Republican Party and continue to this day. And it opened the door for former President Trump and politics rules. And she played politics. She was repaying uh, 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 the president who put her in charge uh, in in the court, uh, Ronald Reagan. And uh, that's not how a justice should vote.
1: Well, Paul, thanks for your reflection on Justice O'Connor. And Melissa, I'd like to ask you about that. Uh, I don't know necessarily about her motivations, but he's absolutely right that Bush v. Gore was a 5-4 decision. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor voted with the conservatives on that to end the Florida recount and handing George W. Bush the election, essentially. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that case and reflect on the impact of that case and, and what you think was going on for her then?
3: Sure. I mean, I think most of your listeners will recall the very contested election of two thousand, where Al Gore and George W. Bush were neck and neck um, right up until the very end, and everything kind of came down to Florida and, in particular, Palm Beach County, where there were questions about Dimple Chads and whatnot, and. This question of which votes should count and how they could count went all the way up to the Florida Supreme Court and then to the United States Supreme Court and then a five to four majority voted to end the Florida recounts, which ultimately gave the election to George W. Bush and As she was for much of her time on the court, O'Connor really was the deciding vote there. Um, I'm not sure that her decision was animated by a desire to repay Ronald Reagan for appointing her to the court. Reagan died in 2004, but had been off the scene for some time when that decision was announced. Um, But I think it is incontrovertible that Bush versus Gore began to lay a foundation for what would ultimately be the undoing of O'Connor's legacy of narrow, pragmatic decisions. Um, She stepped down from the court in 2005. First, John Roberts was nominated to fill her seat. Um, Later that summer, Chief Justice Rehnquist unexpectedly passed away, and Roberts was nominated to take the chief justice position, which then allowed George H.W. or George W. Bush another opportunity to name a justice. And Samuel Alito was ultimately the person who was nominated to fill O'Connor's seat. And You know, we've seen in just the last couple of years what a difference having O'Connor in that seat versus Samuel, Samuel Alito has been. Um, Justice Alito wrote the majority opinion in Dobbs, which laid waste to the very careful compromise that O'Connor helped to broker in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. He was one of the six to three majority to dismantle affirmative action last term in SFAA versus Harvard. So again, I mean, you know, she really was almost, perhaps inadvertently, and perhaps unconsciously the architect of her own
2: legacies dismantling.
1: Yeah. Dahlia, how do you reflect on Bush v. Gore, the appointment of Alito ultimately, and so on? Uh,
2: I mean, I think that, you know, o- O'Connor, um, I, my favorite fun fact about O'Connor is that she had a, a throw cushion in her chambers uh, and on it were written the words, maybe in error, but never in doubt. Um She moved through the world expressing doubt for almost nothing that she had ever done, never expressed regret, sort of had the sense that it's over, move on. in uh, 2013, she, she gave an interview in which she slightly sort of intimated that she maybe thought the court should have stayed out of uh, Bush v. Gore. And I think in some ways it's connected to what Melissa just said, which is on every single issue that she was, I and mean, no word of a lie, um, Jeffrey Rosen described her um, as you know the most important person in America while she was on the court. And in every single signal issue where she was the deciding vote, affirmative action, abortion, campaign finance, church, state, Justice Alito pretty much decimated that legacy even before the Trump appointees came onto the court. And so there is a way in which her decision in Bush v. Gore allowed for, you know, the end of her legacy. And I think that even though there was only one other case that she suggested, she she would have decided differently. My deep, deep sense, and I know this doesn't give the listener any solace, my deep, deep sense is that she, A, knew that the case um, was controversial and that the court um, weighted into something maybe it needed to stay out of. But more profoundly, the issues she dedicated her career to after she sat, stepped down were the issues of civility, civics education, and judicial independence. And none of those things, I think, are accidental. She was profoundly worried about the integrity and the public reputation of the court and she worked toward those ends really until she stepped out of public life in 2018. All of that suggests to me that she would be horrified today by a public court whose approval ratings you know, are as low as they are and by justices who are willing to sort of say and do things that feel very, very sharp and partisan. And in some sense, you can trace so much of the history of that right back to Bush v. Gore.
1: Mm, interesting. Well, Melissa, you also mentioned the careful compromise that she carved out in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And, you know, her posture toward Roe v. Wade and abortion, she was personally skeptical of it. But can you talk about how she ended up constructing the, the decision in Planned Parenthood v. Casey to reflect more of a sensitivity to the public and the public need?
3: Like I don't think it was solely a sensitivity to the public, although I think that was a dominant theme in her decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. I think she was also very much animated by concerns about women's equality, and I, I think it's worthwhile comparing her record with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's. Um, Ginsburg. Ginsburg mm-hmm. is much better known as you know the court's stalwart feminist, but. It is worth noting that Ginsburg and O'Connor were often very much together on questions of women's rights, even if they were often diametrically opposed on other issues. So one of her first decisions on the court is a decision in a case called Mississippi University for Women versus Hogan, in which she struck down the Mississippi University for Women's program that limited a nursing program to women. Um, A man had applied to the program and was told that he could not be admitted because he was not a woman. And the state said that they were We're doing this in order to facilitate the entry of women into the economy, into paid positions, and doing so as a means of reparations for all of the years in which women had been bound to the home. And she was like, you know, record scratch, wait a minute, like no one's ever said that women couldn't be nurses. In fact, the the broad majority of women are nurses. This is nothing more than perpetuating a stereotype that these are the only medical careers that women can get into. And so, you know, there was a way in which that kind of thinking about gender stereotyping that she herself had experienced informed her jurisprudence, and I think it also informed her work in Casey. She struck down in Casey a spousal notification provision, and you know, I think if you read the opinion, although her name is not signed to it, it's very clear that it is her doing the work here. She very much expressed concern that the spousal notification provision would put women who were in unsafe or violent and abusive marriages um, in real danger. She also thought it was a real slight against women's equality and hearkened back to the days in which women were understood to be nothing more than legally the appendages of their husbands. Um, it, it's also worth noting that at the lower court, the Third Circuit, Justice Alito had voted <sighs> to uphold that part of the Pennsylvania Abortion Control Act when he was a lower court judge. So, I think a lot of the compromise was not just about public mood and recognizing that the public wasn't ready to jettison abortion rights completely, but it also reflected her deep seated commitment to this notion of women's equality, which also came through in the Casey decision, much more so than it did in the Roe decision.
1: Hmm. And uh despite her holdings in those two cases that Melissa described, Dahlia, you write about how O'Connor loathed the idea that her gender shaped her jurisprudence. Why?
2: I, I mean I think it goes back to, you know, some of what we talked about at the very top. She really constructed herself as a rugged cowgirl, um, somebody who was raised to be just like the boys and who on her own merits, um, you know, got what she got. And I think she didn't like the kind of gender essentializing. Don't forget when she came on the court, she became a phenomenon. I mean, there were law review articles, there were studies, there was a deep, deep attempt to put her into some, doctrinal basket that said all women think this way all women judges right this way and she balked at that she really felt and she would famously say over and over a wise old man and a wise old woman will come to the same decision because she didn't want to be characterized as different she wanted to be characterized as the same us. and I think that there's a, a, a funny little story that they tell of when um, you know, after a lifetime of saying she hated those studies, she didn't believe that women and men judged differently or thought differently. As Melissa suggested, you know, the studies show that even though she and Justice Ginsburg only agreed about half the time on all the cases they, agreed, uh, they heard together, on gender-related cases, they agreed 90% of the time over their time sitting on the bench together. And at the end of her career, when Sandra Day O'Connor was told she was being replaced by John Roberts, her answer was, he's a very good choice, but it should have been a woman. So she lived in that paradox right to the very, really very end of her her career on the court. Hmm.
1: We're looking at... Uh... Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's judicial legacy, which recent Supreme Court decisions have largely dismantled with Dahlia Lithwick and Melissa Murray. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation, sharing with us what you remember about Justice O'Connor, about her decisions, your questions about them, what those decisions meant to you, what her appointments, the first woman, meant to you. And uh, you are reaching us on our social channels at KQED Forum by emailing forum at kqed.org and by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. On the line now is Christina Rodriguez, a professor of law at Yale Law School who clerked for Justice O'Connor during the Supreme Court's 2002 term. Professor Rodriguez, so glad to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Well, first, what was Justice Justice O'Connor like to work with? She
6: was a larger-than-life person, and she never ceased feeling that way, even as we got to know her. You could tell uh, from the moment you walked into her chambers that she lived a huge life. Uh, I remember when I interviewed with her, she was in the process of planning a big musicale at the Supreme Court, which was one of her signature events, that time in honor of her 70th birthday, which was about to happen, and the 70th birthday of her husband. And she integrated those kinds of things into the day-to-day work of the court while also insisting that that work get done and get done well. So it was, it was a complete and sometimes intimidating package.
1: (laughs) Wow. Well, you clicked for her during the 2002 term when several major cases came before the court, including the affirmative action case, Grutter v. Bollinger. That was a 5-4 decision and Justice O'Connor wrote for the majority. Can, what can you tell us about that? that her reaching that decision, what it was like to be working with her through that case?
6: I think that anyone who worked in Justice O'Connor's chambers understood the significance of the role because she was understood to be at the center of the court or to be a justice who was pragmatic in her decision making, people would seek to understand what was going on behind the scenes in the O'Connor chambers. And, And we understood that year that there were a number of decisions where she might be the decisive vote. And the stakes were high. I I think that one thing she eventually taught us through the process was that even though the stakes were high and temperatures ran high on both sides on the controversial cases, that it was important nonetheless, to be able to talk about those cases openly um, and honestly, and then to transcend the divides that might exist in the process of of debating them, because that was as important to come back to the table, to keep working together as winning a case in a particular moment.
1: Yeah. Well, I am curious, you know, the court has effectively overruled Bruder this year um, in decisions involving the admission practices at the University of North Carolina, and at Harvard. And and I'm wondering if Justice O'Connor ever expressed concern or even predicted that decision would not hold, the Grutter v. Bollinger decision.
6: In the Grutter opinion itself, she famously wrote that it had been 25 years since Justice Powell said that diversity was a compelling interest and race could be used in admissions in the Bakke decision, on which Mm -hmm. she imparts. Relied and so hopefully it would be uh, only 25 more years where this form of race consciousness would be permissible. She was uh, wary of race conscious decision making and had written opinions to that effect, saying they that that form of decision making uh, presented the starkest of constitutional concerns under the equal protection clause. And so her her aspiration was that the need for affirmative action would disappear and that mm. the uh, we would be able to achieve diversity in all of our institutions without having to take account of race. and, and the subtext of that was that whatever inequalities were perpetuating uh, that lack of diversity might be addressed in some fashion. And so she wrote that into the opinion. Uh, we thought more as aspiration than anything else, but we're you know just about at that 25 year mark and the court has decided that it's no longer appropriate for universities to use race in their admissions.
1: Yeah, yeah. You, you were also there when Lawrence v. Texas came before the court. Could you just remind us quickly of that case and the position that Justice O'Connor took because it was an evolution?
6: That was also a um, a five to four decision in which the court struck down the um, a, a law that was uh, enacted in Texas that prohibited same sex sodomy. The court as a whole, in an opinion, Justice O'Connor didn't join because of its reasoning overruled Bowers versus Hardwick, where the court had said in the 1980s that there was no constitutional interest at stake. And Justice Kennedy famously wrote a soaring opinion about the importance of uh, intimacy and making choices about one's private life extending regardless of sexual orientation. Justice O'Connor, nonetheless, agreed in the judgment and voted to strike down the law because uh, she thought it was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. She noted at the beginning of her concurring opinion that she had joined Bowers back in the 1980s and wasn't going to vote to overrule that. That was a clear nod to her emphasis on stare decisis Mm. that is precedent should stand Mm -hmm. to control subsequent decisions. But uh, I think also in a sign that her views changed with the times and she realized that it had come time to extend protection under the Constitution to people on the basis of sexual orientation, she voted to strike down the law because of its reflection of animus against uh, gays and lesbians. And so she introduces this idea um, and, and comes to a conclusion that I think accorded with where she had come without disturbing the fundamental principle of stare decisis to which she also um was
1: loyal yeah and it's notable that the animus was so important to her we're talking with christina rodriguez a professor of law yale law school who clerked for justice o'connor as we remember justice o'connor who died friday at the age of 93 and had such a deep impact on the court and the country we'll have more after the break stay with us
0: i'm nina king
1: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're remembering Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who died on Friday. We're looking at the impact she's had on the court and the country and as a powerful swing vote in contentious cases on abortion and affirmative action and religious liberty. And here's actually a clip of O'Connor reflecting on the idea of being a swing vote. This is from a 2013 interview with NPR's Terry Gross.
7: Well, I don't like that term. I never did. And it's not one that I like any better today. I don't think any justice, and I hope I was not one, who would swing back and forth and just try to <laughs> make decisions not based on legal principles, but on um, where you thought the, the direction should go. And so I, I, I never liked that term. Christina
1: Rodriguez is with us, uh, who clerked for Justice O'Connor during the Supreme Court's 2002 term, a professor now at Yale Law School. Christina, I'm just curious if Justice O'Connor ever talked to you about that role that she assumed or was labeled by the press as a swing vote and and how she felt about that.
6: (laughs) She never, ever talked to us about that label or her position on the court. And I understand why She wouldn't have liked the label because she was an extremely decisive woman. And the idea that she would just be tacking back and forth to try to determine what the best position is in light of public opinion uh, would have been anathema to her. But I do think that she was at the center of the court precisely because she was so practical in her decision making and was not doctrinaire and didn't come to decisions with a predetermined view based on a legal theory of their outcome, but wanted to understand. Understand Not just the facts of the case and the precedent that fed into the case, but what the effects of the court's decision would be. And those qualities, I think, led her to be someone who could talk to everyone else on the court and potentially come to a, an agreement um, with either side of a court that at that time was already ideologically uh, divided.
4: Yeah. Well,
1: is there anything that she has said to you or did demonstrate to you that you have carried with you um, as somebody who, you know, has stayed and now is a professor of law at Yale Law School?
6: Her practical wisdom has always stuck with me. The idea that consequences matter has always stuck with me and the reluctance to see things through an abstract set of ideas as opposed to through how they uh, affect people uh, on the ground has has always stuck with me. It's also, I think, for most of her clerks, important. her legacy is important because of the way she lived so large uh, that she... Lived a life with joy uh, and worked hard, but also loved what she was doing, was endlessly curious, wove art and music into her everyday. And those qualities alongside of her commitment to her family uh, were a source of inspiration to all of us. You could be Mm -hmm. as accomplished and decisive as she was, but also a person who really loved the world around her.
1: Well, Christina Rodriguez, thanks for giving us a fuller picture of Justice O'Connor. I appreciate you coming on.
6: Thanks for giving me the chance to talk about her.
1: Christina Rodriguez, professor of law at Yale Law School. We're also with Melissa Murray, professor of law at NYU School of Law, Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor and legal correspondent at Slate. And we're with you, our listeners, Arlene and Alameda.
5: You're on. Join us. Hi, thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for um, all of your uh, input. Um, I have a, well, a perspective, a quandary. It seems to be very confusing. Um, We're always talking about uh, the uh, liberal and the conservative uh, justices, certainly when it's time to uh, uh, put forth a nomination. Um, And uh, part of this uh, confusion, in my mind, has to do with Um, For instance, um, oh my gosh, you know, literalists. we know who those are. Mm -hmm. And uh, during the time of the Constitution, it seems to me half of what we've, more than half of what we already have as um, having um, been deemed constitutional uh, by the court, uh, how... I mean, the technology, for instance, is so different. Uh, Look at the Second Amendment. Uh, Look at uh, muskets and flintlocks and, um, you know, with single rounds, and maybe they can fire off, um, you know, three bullets in a minute Mm. uh, inaccurately as well. What does that have to do with the technology of today? Mm. Um, So I'm very confused by this thing about, um, you know, how we uh, interpret the Constitution based on somebody's, um, you know, either liberalism or conservatism. Uh, Arlene, thanks. Melissa, what what do you think
1: uh, Justice O'Connor thought of originalism? I, I think we can
3: tell from her jurisprudence that she d- did not think that much of it. I mean, that <laughs> actually is what provoked a lot of Justice Scalia's snarkiest rejoinders to her. I mean, he was someone who was very much in the originalist camp, although he said, "I'm an originalist, but I'm not a nut," so he didn't take it to extremes. But she, again was very focused on these sort of narrow decisions focused exactly on the four corners of the case in front of her not on articulating or advancing a broader I- ideological vision of the constitution or of jurisprudence like you know she had some things that i think she thought were sacrosanct she very much believed in the prerogatives of states and a division of labor between the state and federal government but I don't think she would have recognized the kind of ideological tilt that we now see manifested in this conservative six to three supermajority that very much does seem committed to this idea of thinking about rights and thinking about the Constitution in this very history and tradition bound way.
1: Well, Noel on Discord writes, I remember the undue burden part of Planned Parenthood v. Casey. State legislators twisted this so much that getting an abortion was almost impossible in some areas even before the end of Roe v. Wade. I want to play one more clip of Justice O'Connor talking about how she did craft her opinions very carefully, drawing fine lines, really parsing issues. This is from an interview with Judy Woodruff on the PBS NewsHour.
7: Some of the decisions are made by drawing very fine lines and reasonable people can disagree on where those lines should be drawn. I've been there and I know how challenging it is. It is not surprising at all that some cases are decided by drawing fine lines with five people here and four people on the other side.
1: Dahlia, this makes me think about her opinions related to the separation of church and state, like the Lynch v. Donnelly case, which is actually pretty early, 1984, which is where she introduces or proposes the endorsement test. Can you talk about that while at the same time not necessarily completely, you know, disturbing the waters <laughs> um, too, too much with regard to the separation of church and state at that stage?
2: I mean, this was another issue on which she really did um, evolve over her career. But, you know, one of the things that she developed a huge solicitude for, as she thought, and I, and I think this was an area where, you know, as Christina said, at, 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 you know, at the outset, she had pretty strong views. And she began to think more and more about what it was like to be the outsider, in some of those cases where there was a religious display on government grounds and what it felt to be um, the person who wasn't the celebrant of that holiday, who felt as though they were being coerced or that the government was endorsing a view of faith that was foreign to them or uncomfortable to them. And so I think of her Um, jurisprudence in sort of this line of of church state cases and religious display cases uh, as one of those places where even though she thought she was doing, you know, I'm just looking at the four corners of this case. We've said this over and over again in the show. I just want to decide the facts in front of me. There was this deep solicitude for what it was to be an outsider, to be the person standing outside of that moment of celebration and being made to feel lesser. And I think that that solicitude in case after case, I mean, as, as you heard, she you know, really, I think, had a very broad aperture for seeing who would be affected. And I think the religion cases are a really good example to me of her view that was wider than the scope that we see in so many cases today, where you see a justice feel deeply, deeply that they identify with one viewpoint of one religious adherent, and then they kind of erase everyone else out of the picture. That was the opposite, I think, of Justice O'Connor's way of thinking about these cases, which was how does the city feel How does the the majority feel? And how does that outsider feel? Because that matters too. And that way of looking at the world is really, really disappearing fast at the present present Supreme Court.
1: That way of looking at the world is just disappearing fast, Melissa, says Dahlia Lithwick. The fact that the court has overruled or vastly undermined Casey Grutter or Grutter (laughs) and other cases that we've been discussing... What do you conclude has happened to O'Connor's judicial legacy? Um, what do you think about what it is? <laughs> Melissa.
3: Well, I, I think I there are two things. Like one is sort of ideological and one is just kind of basic collegiality. Um, you know, the conservative legal movement has been ascendant in this country for about 15 years, like roughly the time in which Justice O'Connor stepped away from the court. And it has been much more ideologically pitched than just sort of standard partisanship around the court. I mean, when I think of Justice O'Connor, I think of her as kind of a country club Republican, whereas now I think we're seeing on the court like sort of a hardline division, even among the conservatives, between a kind of MAGA jurisprudence and then the kind of, you know, George W. Bush conservatism. But it's really not the kind of Republican Party conservatism that we might have seen in the days of George H.W. Bush or, you know, Prescott Bush. I mean, like she seems to be of that world and that world is gone. And Mm -hmm. a big part of it is, I think, the The influence of the conservative legal movement, um, which has made very clear that when they're looking at Supreme Court justices, they don't want any more suitors. They don't want any more O'Connor's, these kind of faithless Republicans who are feckless conservatives and too wobbly on these issues and not ideological enough. They want more Scalia's and maybe even more to the right of Justice Scalia, which we're seeing now. So on an ideological level, the court is just moving to the right and she has been left behind as a result of that. I think, though, in terms of the interjustice dynamics, there's been a loss of collegiality, um, or at least it seems like things are a little more pitched. Um, we, you know, we've seen the justices talk about what it means to work together, what the leak of Dobbs meant for them in terms of their trust of one another. Things really do seem to have corroded or deteriorated She, on the other hand, was someone who really was kind of a bridge builder on the court. You know, Justice Thomas talks about how warmly she welcomed him after his embattled confirmation fight. Um, She was a welcoming force to Justice Sotomayor when she joined the court. Um, You know, she brought the clerks together for her very famous aerobics class in the highest court (laughs) in the land. I mean, she was someone who I think very much believed in kind of creating a sense of we're all in this together. We're all a family. And, you know, this is part of the reason why I think she was so piqued by some of Justice Scalia's snark that was leveled in her direction. Like it wasn't a collegial way to behave Mm -hmm. and it wasn't the way
1: she behaved. To your point about her sort of being a Republican of a bygone era, Pete tweets, who were O'Connor's advocates in the Reagan administration? I don't suppose there are any similar Republican souls around today. Or remembering Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You know, Dahlia, sort of a similar question around what is, what has happened to her judicial legacy? I'm thinking of the fact that you, you know, you have a piece in Slate that's called the sad ending of Sandra Day O'Connor's judicial legacy. You've described her legacy as in shambles. I think a lot about that 5-4 decision where she upheld the McCain-Feingold campaign finance law that was then you know, four years after she retires, severely undermined by Citizens United in 2010. I mean, why do you say it's in shambles? Uh, you know, I'm giving a reason, but also just wanted to know your thinking behind that choice of words.
2: I, I mean, I think that the simplest answer and the one we give in the piece is simply the substitution of Samuel Alito for Sandra Day O'Connor was the substitution of a movement conservative who has really, I think, become the far right wing with Clarence Thomas of the present day court for Sandra Day O'Connor, who, as we've said over and over again, was the fulcrum of the court. And so when you have the person who was determinative on As you say, campaign finance reform, as we discussed earlier on affirmative action, on upholding Roe v. Wade in the Casey case, on, you know, a whole host of church state questions, which have now gone completely the other way in area after area after area, the swapping out. Of Sandra Day O'Connor for Samuel Alito. And again, this was in some ways happened even before some of the Trump justices came on the court. We were already seeing, as you said, you know, within three, four, five years that an edifice that she had spent, you know, two and a half decades constructing her jurisprudential worldview was just kind of annihilated in the span of a few years. And Mm -hmm. while I said earlier, you know, Justice O'Connor did not express regret about a lot of things uh, in her career. She was very pragmatic, even about her own kind of quasi erasure at the court. She did um, in a sort of sideways way express dismay at how quickly uh, her worldview had been dismantled. And in some sense, you know, because she made the pledge in 2018 to retire from public life, we don't know uh, what she would have thought of today's Supreme Court, which has deviated so far from her worldview in so many places. But I think what Melissa is saying is really salient here, which is the thing she cared about almost most of all, which was collegiality among the justices and the estimation of the court in the view of the public. Those two things, almost more than any area of jurisprudence, have been eradicated in her absence, and I think that would break her heart.
1: Hmm. Well, this is no as a memory. I watched oral arguments at the Supreme Court in 1995 when I was a TA in law school. My clearest memory of the event was Justice O'Connor's tongue lashing to an attorney who was avoiding the question <laughs> presented. Um, so... Right now, Melissa, it's John Roberts who's viewed as the swing vote. Well, it's a conservative majority. But I I guess I do wonder if you have any comparisons just for people who never knew the O'Connor way (laughs) to Justice John Roberts.
3: Well, they are two very different justices. Um, You know, I I think Justice... O'Connor is very different from the chief justice. I think they were both um, institutionalists. The chief justice may even be the most institutionally minded member of the court today, um, in large part because of his role as the chief justice of the United States, as opposed to a rank and file associate justice. And he is in the middle. I think sometimes Justice Kavanaugh is also mentioned as sort of the quintessential swing Mm -hmm. justice at this moment in time. But I think that really requires you to think hard about what the median justice looks like now versus the time when Justice O'Connor really was the median justice. And Brett Kavanaugh and Justice O'Connor just are not in the same place ideologically um, and in terms of their jurisprudence. So to say that Brett Kavanaugh or even the chief justice is in the middle it's really to make clear how far the court has moved to the right since Justice O'Connor left.
1: Well, Melissa Murray, really appreciate having your insights about O'Connor and what it reflects about today's Supreme Court. Thanks so much for coming on.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Professor Melissa Murray, professor of law at NYU School of Law, co-host of Strict Scrutiny, the podcast. Dahlia, also always great to have you. Thank you, Mina. Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor and legal correspondent at Slate and host of the Amicus or Amicus podcast. My thanks to Christina Rodriguez for coming on as well. My thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments, and my thanks to Susie Britton for producing today's segment. This is Forum. I'm
7: Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.